0: Hey Austin lovers, we're here checking out the hidden gem from our last guest Taste of Coco Jane Co. Her hidden gem was this awesome bar downtown just around the corner from the Driscoll called In Plain Sight. Uh, Carrie and I have made it over here at 5 o'clock on a Friday. and We just met the amazing bartender, Finn. Finn. Hey, hey, Finn, give us a shout out. Hey. <laughs> it's a really small space. You're going to be family with everybody who's in here. Literally maybe
1: 10, 10 seats at the bar, yeah. amazing cocktails, a really cool vibe, a great playlist.
0: We, we met, just had like and a, a two-hour true- conversation with Rain, Rain, the Norwegian. The Norwegian, that's amazing so nice yeah it's a lot of fun but we're excited about our next guest
1: yes so our next guest has a lot of familiarity and history with austin's environmental culture and ecology and if you're a lover of all the local watering holes around here we're going to be talking a lot about it so so have have a a
0: listen all right all right
1: Welcome to Under the Moon Tower, a podcast where we delve into Austin's unique people and places beyond what you might find on a city's top 10 list. All right, welcome to Under the Moon Tower, everyone. I first want to give a shout out and a thank you to Lori, my neighbor. She was kind enough to introduce us to our next guest. If you're curious about Austin's popular green spaces and environmental awareness, you're absolutely going to love who we have joining us today. For over 20 years, she's been a producer creating media work for digital platforms, broadcast and physical installations focused on environmental preservation, as well as the history of Austin. She's created an interactive digital scrapbook chronicling 50-plus years of citizen efforts to create the Barton Creek Greenbelt, which will actually inform an upcoming historical documentary. In 2021, she chronicled Austin's first open space advocates with an Austin PBS special. Over the past decade, she's been producing an ongoing series, Living Springs, along with two interactive exhibits at the Barton Springs Bathhouse about the culture, history, and science of Barton Springs Pool. Her interest in fusing digital technology and the natural world further manifests in the project Zilker Trek. It's an immersive mobile media scavenger hunt and nature journaling activity that's helped underserved kids, their counselors, and other interested parties to find greater meaning in their natural surroundings, and it's free of charge. Our guest's other work includes Austin's first interactive digital history, titled Austin Past and Present, which is initially installed in kiosks and public buildings, and it's now integrated into the social studies curriculum throughout the Austin Independent School District. She's also worked on nationally broadcast PBS documentaries, including the award-winning series Chicano, a history of the Mexican-American civil rights movement, and Songs of the Homeland, a documentary about the history of Tex-Mex music. Since 1998, our guest has been teaching at the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas, Austin. There's so much to share about the impact and type of projects, as well as the awards and recognition that she's received. But we do want to dig in because we know that we're bound to learn a lot today. So it's our delight to welcome Karen Coker.
2: Thank you so much. What a great introduction. It made me feel good about myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sharon, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your time and knowledge with us. We'd love to kick things off by understanding a little bit about you and your passion for the environment, city, the culture here in Austin. How did you get to this place? Like, where did you grow up? What led you to yeah. sort of be on the path that you you find yourself on
2: today? Well, I grew up in New Jersey exit 4A for those people who know the Jersey Turnpike. And uh, (laughs) the town where I grew up was one of those George Washington slept here type of towns. So it was a historic town. We were very much aware of history. It was founded by the Quakers. And so my interest was just sort of built into where I lived. I was lucky enough to grow up in a place surrounded by not only history, but also green space. And it was just part of my lived experience. And summer camps in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey also influenced my love of the natural world.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And were your parents into the natural world as well? Did, did your family embrace it? Were you a camping family? Did you do that sort of stuff? Or is this just something yeah. that started with you?
2: My parents were pretty much urbanites. My mother grew up in South Philadelphia in the city and, you know, they appreciated all of that, but they weren't really into it or they didn't necessarily stress it. So it was something that I was just lucky enough to experience. And how did you get to Texas? Oh, let's try and make that not too long of a story. So (laughs) I went to college at George Washington University for undergrad and I when I graduated, I was working for a German news magazine called Der Spiegel, which is sort of like the Newsweek of Germany. And I was their Washington Bureau researcher. So I sort of started off in journalism, but and I loved the research. That was my job, just reading newspapers, digging into what stories I could help the reporters to to cover. But I really was missing, like, where's the image? Where's the sound? I want to make documentaries. I love National Geographic. So I thought, how could I become a documentary filmmaker? And it was either go work and hopefully eventually get to that place sometime or go to grad school. And I chose UT because it was the only place that I could afford to pay for. My parents made it pretty clear they're not helping with this weird journey that I was going to take. That's great.
0: And so you came here and
2: then stayed. Yes. So I came here. And actually, I've been interested in environmental media. And at one time, CNN or the Turner Network had a show called Network Earth. It was a magazine format show. And I was really sort of intending to go work for Network Earth and trying to make that happen. But then I met my husband. And well, I actually knew my husband from grad school. But anyway, we got together after grad school and I got pregnant and the rest is (laughs) my Austin history.
0: There you go. (laughs) That's great.
1: Well, we're going to talk about a lot of your projects. I think to kick things off with talking specifically about environmental issues. I was watching a couple of your documentaries. One was from 1993 and the other from just a couple of years ago, 2021. Mm. And something that was unique to me or that I didn't know was that our city's founders were pretty conscientious of the natural beauty and created intentional urban planning around a greenbelt so that recreational elements were integrated. That was relatively fresh, right, for the time. So all the way from Andrew Zilker and Elisha Peace to the likes of Beverly Sheffield and and Roberta Crenshaw. So we've had these conservationists, environmentalists every step of the way here in our city. I would love to know about Austin's current environmental consciousness and how the city and regulations are playing out to protect our public parks, green belts, and aquifers like
2: Barton Springs. Well, I would say that one of the things that those early folks did was to try and have an environmental department. I mean, there wasn't any environmental department before, you know, Roberta came along and said we need to have someone representing the environment within city government. And also we need to create citizens boards so people can get more involved in what's happening and get sort of an inside line into knowing what the city's doing. And so you see that, reflected today in a much more robust form with the Watershed Protection Department, Awesome Water Utility. So they really institutionalized. They began the process of institutionalizing environmental thinking into our city's process. And, you know, you can definitely see that reflected in the city today. Yes. So I would say that. And the boards and commissions. So if you've been following right now, there's a Zilker vision plan and It's pretty controversial, and I don't necessarily want to get into that too much, but just to say that you can really see the boards and commissions, so the plans going through all these boards and commissions first, so citizens have a chance to weigh in on it in many different phases, which before Roberta came along wouldn't have been the case. The city council would have just rubber-stamped it without a lot of citizen input.
1: What I noticed about just historically, it seems that it really took uh, citizen advocacy and social movement to really make some of these changes that you're talking about happen. And keeping that maintained through citizen involvement in the government, I think, is really is kind of key.
2: Well, Bill Bunch is the executive director of the Save Our Springs Alliance. We did a profile on him. And and he said, Barton Springs is never saved. You have to save it every day. And I do think that with environmental things, you have this issue attention cycle where sometimes it's really in the forefront and people are mm-hmm. you know, focused on it. And then people kind of forget about it because there's nothing pressing at the moment. So if if people who are dedicated to environmental things don't keep their eye on the ball, don't keep pressing, things are gonna slide back. And you definitely have this pendulum of back and forth. But I would say that the Save Our Springs movement, if there hadn't been Jim Bob Moffat, who ran Freeport MacMurray, who was behind this Barton Creek development pud, he really gave a face to the Save Our Springs movement because he was very arrogant and people could rally against him. But most of the time, environmental stuff gets really into like reports and scientific talk and the people just turn off with, you know, nutrient loading. That is so boring. (laughs) Um, So it's definitely something where the environmental community has to stay engaged all the time. What do
0: you think the biggest threat to Barton Springs is today?
2: Definitely still impervious cover, Nutrient loading. There we go. Nutrient loading. But basically, yeah. Maybe can
0: you define nutrient loading? What does that mean? Well,
2: essentially, where you have like fertilizers that people put on their lawns to keep them green, and when it rains, essentially that goes into you know sinkholes and it it infiltrates into the ground and it goes into the aquifer and that causes algae growth. So you know the city had a robust program to try and buy up land over the Barton Springs segment of the Edwards Aquifer, but the city of Austin doesn't have jurisdiction over a lot of that land. So they have had to find other ways to have a say-so in terms of what's going to happen. And a lot of the water from Barton Springs comes from way outside of Austin. So purchasing land and setting it aside and not letting it be developed is one of the strongest ways that the city really has of protecting the water quality. Mm the aquifer is an underground water source, but the mm-hmm. water comes from the rain. It comes from what runs off the land when it rains. Mm-hmm. So it's basically an underground wa- hold, you know, holds water. But mm-hmm. the Edward, the Barton Springs segment of the Edwards is just, dis- is somewhat distinctive from where San Antonio gets this water. There's sort of a du- dividing line. And so when people say Edwards aquifer. It's kind of wordy to say Barton Springs segment of the Edwards Aquifer, but that is what feeds Barton Springs.
0: How large is the Edwards Aquifer?
2: Well, it extends down into Hayes County, like out to Dripping Springs. It's southwest of Austin, so it covers a very large area. Essentially, if you can envision like a, a long rectangular piece of land, that you have different creeks that bisect that. And where the creeks bisect that is where the water actually primarily enters into the aquifer. So there are six creeks and Barton Creek is probably the best known of them because it's close sure. to us. I mean, but there are six creeks that cross that zone. And so water enters across this very large area. Hmm. Um, mm, interesting. And and this is the thing is I, I ask my students, how many of you have been to Barton Springs and hands go up. Well, okay, well, where does the water come from? And it's amazing all the different answers that I get. So we're still not doing enough to get the word out in spite of all the signage. You know, it's not for lack of trying. Right. <laughs> and and
0: other than going to swim in the beautiful pool that is Barton Springs
2: and have that experience, what should listeners take away? Well, for one thing, the water from Barton Springs does empty into Lady Bird Lake and the the Colorado River and it flows Mm -hmm. downstream. So people downstream are going to be drinking that. So I don't know if that's enough of a reason to care that we (laughs) want to have clean drinking water. It's a very um, nice source of water in terms of the pollutants. It's clean water as compared with other water sources. It's in pretty good shape. So that's one thing. And then uh, the springs have been central to the good and the bad of the history of the city. So if you look at the history of Austin, I think you could make the argument for a parallel between the history of Barton Springs and the history of the city as a whole. So it's very reflective of, of this city. So Carrie, you were mentioning the, uh, the 1928 Austin plan, which basically said that the Park should be along green belts. But one thing that is the downside of that plan is that it basically segregated the city of Austin, which we have a disclaimer at the end of the documentary. It was not necessarily part of the story we were telling in that film. But the springs, from the time that they started fixing up the springs in the 20s until 1962, Black people were not welcome at Barton Springs. They weren't allowed to buy tickets until 1962. So Austin has this kind of liberal reputation, but it was very much a Southern city in that sense.
1: Hmm. Are there other elements, or you you talked about it, how much it, it parallels with Austin history. Are there other elements of that that you see still ever present today?
2: Certainly the Springs have played a big role in Austin's political life. So when the rise of the Save Our Springs movement, that has impacted Austin's City council elections for many decades hence, in terms of who gets elected, the makeup of the, of the city council. So, it had a big impact on the direction that our city took from the 90s for the next couple of decades.
0: When did the Save Our Springs movement kick off? And what was the defining thing that like nudged it into existence?
2: Yes, I mean, it was really a fascinating time. I had more or less just moved to Austin at that time. And so somehow I like happened on channel six, which was the Austin, Texas city council meetings. I had just started grad school and I was just flicking around. I couldn't sleep. And I see these people down at the city council in, let's see, 1990. And there were people playing guitars, people emptying out, backpacks full of golf balls, reciting poetry. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. This is the city council of this city where I just moved. So this is an interesting town. And these people are really interesting people. And I just started to follow that along. And this was when the Barton Creek Planned Unit development was being proposed. And these were people coming out to say, we don't want this thing. And the city was starting to revise the comprehensive watershed ordinance which is basically saying that this ordinance isn't strong enough to protect the Barton Creek and the spring so we need to strengthen it well that became very politicized and essentially you had four people on the Austin City Council that were trying to compromise with the development community who were like no way we don't want to limit how much impervious cover we have we don't want limitations there's already too many limitations You had people in the environmental community and actually the staff of the city saying, you know, this is what we would have to do if we really wanted to protect it. And people realized we need to do something because the city council is not going to do it. And so people that had been involved in the environmental community from SOS started off as SOS Coalition. It was a coalition of different environmental groups and the neighborhood groups got very involved. Austin has had a very active Austin Neighborhoods Council, which is also something that came out of the 70s. So you really had neighborhoods, councils, and environmental groups all coalescing around this issue of we have to have a stronger watershed ordinance if we're going to protect the spring. So that's kind of how it all got going. When I started off, I told my cohort in grad school, I'm going to be doing a documentary about the revision of the Comprehensive Watershed Ordinance And they all looked at me like, that is the most boring thing I ever heard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But Save Our Springs is pretty catchy. (laughs) Well, it blew up.
2: (laughs) Yes, it blew up. And this is what happened is that was the rise of the Save Our Springs movement. So the very boring thing, which maybe could have turned out boringly, ended up turning into the Save Our Springs movement, which has had this tremendous impact in Austin.
1: Can you highlight... Just out of all of your projects throughout your career, a few that really stand out to you and that you've been the most proud of?
2: Well, when I went to do my master's thesis about the Save Our Springs movement, I went to the Austin History Center to do research. And I realized that, that the things I was looking up on Barton Springs was just not even the tip of the iceberg. It was like the one drop of water out of the iceberg that this place had amazing archival materials. And people don't know about it. I want to bring these archives to life. So I had the idea that I wanted to create an interactive digital history about the city of Austin. And it would be in kiosks, in public buildings, and it would be in schools. And I could learn myself. Everything that I do is very self-serving in the sense of I want to learn more things. This town is like an onion. Any town is really like an onion. The more you learn, the more there is to learn, you interact with people, you find amazing, cool archival materials. And so that really is what drives me. Is just my passion for learning. I but- echo that sentiment, which is <laughs> yes. why we're
0: doing this podcast. It's because it's killing the- onion. <laughs> yes, you can hear a little the snap snaps. snaps for you. <laughs> yeah. Because you get to hear all these interesting stories and perspectives.
1: You're the second person to talk about that too, about the archives. Dr. Hunt, right? Wasn't Mm -hmm. that Anne that told us we actually visited there? It is a treasure trove, but I can see why that would open Pandora's box for you, Karen.
2: Yeah. So what resulted in that? So basically I started in the year 2000 to embark on this project. So six years later, 1,600 screens of image and text, over two hours of video material, ended up on this interactive DVD-ROM. So this is right before Web 2.0. It's hard for people that are younger than 35 maybe <laughs> to realize that the web wasn't always this rich trove of visuals and video and audio because just it the bandwidth, it couldn't handle it. So we just finished that project as Web 2.0 was coming to life and people didn't have connectivity at home to do Zoom meetings or, or to screen video. So we ended up with an interactive DVD ROM, which was all the rage for interactive learning at the time. And I'm really interested in interactive technology um, for uh, nonfiction, for storytelling, because I feel that it allows you to have a multivocal kind of story. Some people call it polyphonic documentary, mm-hmm. because you don't have to tell one person's story. But when you're doing interactive stuff that's multimedia you can bring those things back in really interesting ways so maps timelines galleries there's just so many opportunities and that's what Austin past and present was doing and it really allowed us to tell not only the history of white Austin but also a lot of the history of the underrepresented communities in Austin so that was something i was really proud about and those stories ended up in lesson plans for seven grade levels in AISD.
1: I could see that being incredibly helpful. I mean, maybe it was just because I didn't have a kid at the time in some of the other places that I lived. Something else that was interactive that struck out to me was the Zilker Trek project, too. Can you talk about that a bit? I really loved hearing about that project.
2: Well, Zilker Trek is a multimedia scavenger hunt and journaling activity for Zilker Park. And that really came about because I was at the park and I saw kids from the Sunshine Camp walking with their counselors. And I didn't see the counselors pointing out this and that and the other. And I was like, oh, my God, they're not telling them about this or they're not telling them about this. There's so many cool things that I've learned from having A guide because I've sought people out to to tell me things. So I thought, wow, I'm going to try to make something that is hands on and interactive and learning. And I'm going to raise the money and gift it to the Sunshine Camp. So we created these little backpacks, and in the backpack was a journal. And that was also at the time when the iPods were first coming out. So underserved kids did not have access to technology as like a lot of the kids in West Austin. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun for them to be able to have their own iPod to walk around with? And so we installed the Zilker track onto the iPods. So I very much wanted to kind of meld nature and technology together. I don't think they need to be separate. There's this thing about divorcing ourselves from technology. There's a big movement for that. And yes, I think direct interaction with the environment is awesome, but it's also great to be able to meld those two together. So we created the Zilker Trek and gifted it to the Sunshine Camp. And then I raised a little bit of extra money to then create this website, which I think it's a little outdated. But, you know, it basically puts the action in the kids' hands. Be a biologist. Be a birder. Be a geologist. Basically, the activities are related to these different areas of not only STEM education, but also literature. So be a poet they would hike through the Japanese garden at the Zilker Botanical Garden and we would give them an example of what a haiku is. Then they would walk down the path and write their own haiku based on the things that they saw. My goal was that by the end of the camp, they would have this journal that they could take home with them Mm. that would have record their memories to create a connection because I think this connection to place is where the love of the environment and, and the history begins. And you can
0: load it onto your phone and go on a scavenger hunt with your kids. So this is a great example of marrying, like you said, technology and a love of the outdoors and the environment.
2: Um, Yes. And for people that don't want to have their kids like on their phones, the parents could watch the videos and just absorb what the lesson is and just give their kids a journal and some pencils and some binoculars and some clay So we tried to make it very hands-on and do these activities with, you don't really need a phone. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I can't remember which of the documentaries it was, but it rings so true. Even today, they were talking about the benefits from a mental health standpoint Mm. of nature and Now we have all this information and brain research and mental Mm -hmm. health awareness about the benefits of being in the outdoors, just emphasizing and placing an importance on it for holistic health. I think there are a lot of ways that we can continue to do that, even with the technology mode, like you're saying. People can not only learn something about their city, they can take a breather and not be fully checked out for people that don't want that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I could see that really playing out in the next five, 10, 15 years. One
2: thing I think would be cool is to think about that Austin history project as more of a being in physical space, whether it's through QR codes on buildings or signage. And Mm -hmm. same thing with the Barton Creek Greenbelt. I had ideas about creating a scavenger hunt, like utilizing that content, because once you create the content, how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep people engaged? Because you could put something up there and you know, it just kind of sits.
0: But such a great tool for anybody who's working with learners because schools, camps, if you could follow a scavenger hunt with QR codes throughout the city that you found and scanned and got information, I mean, that's great. I'm thinking my mind is just spinning on all the different field trips that my kids have been on and that that could be enhanced by this. Mm -hmm. And the fact that somebody like you is out there putting this media together, and then you have access to learners studying this form as well. There's such opportunities, I think. Yeah.
2: Yes. I mean, I think the sky's the limit. I have projects that are planned out for the next decade or so. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. We had I had a physical exhibit that I did with Lauren Jabin, who is an artist. And Lauren and I, we came to Austin at about the same time and her husband was in journalism, photojournalism. So I tapped her with this idea for Faces of Barton Springs. And basically the idea was to celebrate the swimmers of the springs. And so in 2018, we had a physical exhibit at Barton Springs. So Currently, I'm working to create an online version of that, that people submit their photos of themselves at the Springs and their Barton Springs stories. And then you can go online and it's a way to celebrate the swimmers and the swimming and kind of connect people to continue to thinking about the place. So that's something I'm working on right now.
0: I love that. It is such a special and unique place in this city. Barton Springs is. No, but all all
2: the schools of thought go to Barton Springs.
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm. it really is awesome. Well, I wanted to piggyback on the topic of just evolutions. And you've talked about how the city has evolved, how the activism around Save Our Springs and looking at the environment has changed and shifted and affected local politics throughout the years. Um, We talk on this podcast a lot about the cultural evolution of Austin, And we're always talking with our story partners about how they perceive that. Everybody has a different take, but can you share some of your personal and your professional sort of perspectives on what you feel like the greatest threats and opportunities are to our city right now?
2: I mean, I can only reflect back on when I moved here and the reason why I chose this place. Being on the East Coast, you don't have much of a sense of Texas. Texas is in, is in the news a lot, but my parents were like, where are you going? Mm-hmm. What is that place? And I was like, well, I don't really know, but it sounds good. <laughs> and I got in and I can afford to pay for it. So there you go. And the affordability of the city is really, I think, one of the biggest things because mm. people with, I kind of keep awesome weird I don't think weird and rich are necessarily like. Correlating terms. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously a generalization, but I do think that it's very expensive to move here. And that's one major shift that's occurred is Austin is an expensive city.
0: True. And that has shifted a lot. Mm
2: -hmm. It's also, there's so many new neighborhoods. If you think about UT Austin in the 50s, the 30s, the 40s, the professors all lived right there. Like Jay Frank Dobie, that famous folklorist. I mean, his house is on Dean Keaton or 26th Street. So the professors lived around the university in terms of being able to be part of the broader culture beyond teaching your classes and having a university culture. I think, you know, as Austin get more expensive, the people that work at UT, they don't want to stay after hours because that means they're going to get stuck on Mopac or take forever to get home because they can't afford to live close to UT. Unless you're the basketball coach or the dean of a college or maybe the chair of a department, you're not going to be able to afford to live in the downtown. So I think that In terms of the culture of the university, and I'm sure that applies other places, I think it doesn't have like that fabric of connection.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, I don't want to be like all doom and gloom. I mean, when I moved here in terms of the restaurant scene.
0: It was grim. (laughs) Yeah, it was grim there for a while. I know.
2: (laughs) Now it's like pretty crazy how many choices there are here in Austin. I lived down on Mopac and Enfield until 2019. I live in North Austin now, Northwest Austin, and it's so much more diverse here than where I lived originally. You hear all kinds of languages. There's all kinds of amazing restaurants that aren't like people lining up out the door to get to. It's pretty interesting.
0: Hmm. That's the flip side of the growth, right? Is you get a lot more diversity, you get a lot more variety and in. in- Right. I mean, the arts,
2: you know, Mm -hmm. the support for the arts, the Blanton was just a little museum or a little gallery in the art building. And now it's got this fabulous building and they just got the largest collection of Chicano Latino art, a very large collection. So, I mean, I'm not a like Austin sucks now kind of person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's okay to be objective and look around and go, this is a challenge. How to keep it the essence of what we all love about this place with whatever this is going on over on this side. And then on this side, oh, this is actually a bonus I hadn't thought about that's growing over here. Okay.
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of talk about East Austin and gentrification, but I mean, that ship has more or less sailed. A long
0: time ago, I feel like.
2: That was something that in the very last video that was in the Austin history project that I did, we started with the prehistoric Austin all the way up to what was the present day in 2006. And that was already something in 2006 that was pretty evident. The traditional communities of East Austin who had been in East Austin because they were segregated over to East Austin were now being gentrified out. There was a loss of the fabric of the communities, obviously not completely, but... All you need to do is walk over there and it's like restaurant, restaurant, restaurant and modern houses that have taken the place of the bungalows that were there. So it's it's interesting to talk about. It's okay. Yeah, We like to talk about the changes
1: in the city and we, we talked through that with all of our guests, but we actually are getting ready to jump into the lightning round and to wrap things up, but we wanted to ask you what you thought that an average citizen could do to be more mindful of and and really to protect and support the environmental needs of the city. Why should these issues matter to to folks, and what can they do moving forward?
2: Well, I guess get informed, follow those issues. Why should they get involved? Like you were saying, open space and parks are good for our mental health. So I would say for your own sake, it's good to be aware of what's happening and, and support the groups that are supporting parks and open space because we all need it for our mental health. And one of the things that the Texas legislature is considering is getting rid of the parkland dedication ordinance that we have here in Austin, which basically said to people that are developing property, that you have to set aside a certain amount of green space. If you can't do it on your development, you pay into a fund so it could be elsewhere. But I think ensuring that we have access To parks, I mean that's so important to all of us, and especially if you have kids, you know they're they're so much better behaved when they're outside. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's the Trail Conservancy now, the Awesome Parks Foundation, Save Our Springs. There's the Shoal Creek Conservancy, the Pease Park Conservancy. Every neighborhood is going to have somebody who's looking out for the green space, and if they don't start something. Mm. Um, You can serve on the Parks Board. That's one of the boards and commissions that I was talking about. There's Keep Awesome Beautiful. I mean, some people don't want to be involved in environmental groups because they say it's too political. But Keep Awesome Beautiful is basically on these certain days, go pick up trash. That's nothing political about picking up trash. And Tree Folks is a fabulous organization. They, They have free tree giveaways. There are so many groups in Austin that are touching on green space, open space. If it seems too political, there's your sort of basic cool stuff. And then Awesome Parks Foundation has It's My Parks Day, which basically every single neighborhood could join into these efforts. So it's a good place to get started. Okay. So we're going to
0: finish up with our lightning round questions. Yes. About your local experiences. Yeah. We always do this with our story partners just for a bit of fun to get recommendations and Mm-hmm. Maybe learn something new. So I'm just gonna fire them off, and you just give me whatever first comes to mind. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> favorite outdoor venue or recreational spot? Favorite
2: outdoor well, Barton Springs yeah. <laughs> is my favorite outdoor venue and recreation spot. But I also love the Taniguchi Garden in the Zoka Botanical Garden. I think it's a special place.
0: It is beautiful. If you haven't been to the Botanical Gardens, listeners, you should go. They're exceptional. Favorite music venue?
2: This might be a little out into left field, but the best music experience I've had being kind of a quiet introvert is the amphitheater at Laguna Gloria. Uh, Oh, yeah. What did you hear there? Fabulous place with some string quartet or something. (laughs) It, it was just sitting out there and listening mm-hmm. to music and having like the natural sounds mixed in with music. It was it, it was a great place for a concert. Mm.
0: Beautiful, favorite breakfast taco.
2: Okay, definitely taco deli sirloin egg and cheese, <laughs> add potato on double corn with donia sauce. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it. Oh. I love that was a great order. That was yep.
2: decisive. Can you tell I picked that out before? <laughs> that was inspired my son t- turned me out of that. Those mashed potatoes on the Yes. I can't get I can't get on board with the mashed potato thing. Uh, it it
0: weirds me out every time.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, cuz it's not a texture that you expect in a breakfast taco. No, no. It's
0: not and it's not even like a thick mashed potatoes. It's kind of a soupy mashed potatoes.
2: Yeah. I just like that. Extra. But
0: some, but it's like, it's a love or hate thing. Some people really love those soupy mashed potatoes. <laughs> Best
2: hidden gem. Best hidden gem. I have the Taniguchi Garden at the Zoker Botanical Garden, which is a repeat of something I just said, but I just think it is a wonderful place and the history of it is awesome.
0: Okay. And advice for newcomers.
2: Pick a topic and go to the Austin History Center and ask them for what they have on that.
0: Ooh, that's a fun exercise.
2: And Very then you cool. get
1: all the multimedia sources that Karen's known for.
2: <laughs> the Austin History Project is called Austin Past and Present. And at one time, it was a bestseller of book people. Um, but now it's in hibernation until I can bring it back to life.
1: Yeah, but I mean, even going to the Austin Center and pulling all of the archives on a topic, like you're going to get books and pictures and video and all the things. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. So just pick something and and go there and fill out the little slip of paper and see what they bring you. I love that.
0: That's a good summer afternoon for some school age parents that are entertaining their kids.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yes. A little. Mm.
1: Well, Karen, I know Anne probably would attest to that we got a little mini audio documentary PBS special just in this hour-long interview with you, and we really, really appreciate it. For listeners, we talked about it a little bit at the front, but Origins of a Green Identity is one of the documentaries that Karen's produced, as well as Common Ground, The Battle for Barton Springs. Check those out. They are so informative. You can find them on YouTube. They really do dissect the historical context and really why it's so part, important for everybody to care about these issues. Is there anything else you want to share with listeners caring about future projects or stuff that's coming out?
2: Well, I couldn't do these projects without Monica Flores. She is been my producing partner on the last couple of projects that I've done and we work really well together. So I wanted to just give Monica a shout out <laughs> and we're going to be working on the sequel to Origins of a Green Identity, because that film really ends in 1970. And it doesn't really say how did we actually end up getting the green belt. So we're going to fill in those blanks. And it's a fascinating story. And it wouldn't have happened without just a couple of people that really pushed, pushed, pushed and got other people on board. So we hope a really fascinating continuation of that story And like I said, I have projects in my mind for the next decade. So I could do a whole series called Green Guardians because there are so many wonderful stories to tell about people that cared. And so I look forward to continue to develop those. Karen,
0: thank you so much again for being here. We loved this and good luck with all your future projects. And we'll be looking forward to discovering them as they come out.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been fun talking about them. I could talk about it all day. So I hope that the audience will find something useful in what we talked about.
1: Absolutely. We'll include the links in our show notes and on our website, too, so that people can find the documentaries and your UT bio page and just learn a little bit more about the projects that you've been working on.
0: Sounds great. Thank you right. so much. Take care. Bye. 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 Thanks. Thanks. Okay. Well, gosh, I, Carrie, I feel like that was just a lot of information, (laughs) really good information. There are things I didn't know, but I also feel like I have a list of things I want to go look up now. And I want to go look up the Zilker Trek. I want to look up Austin past and present. I, sorry, my dog is barking right now. Listeners, it happens. The faces of Barton Springs exhibit. I hope they make that an online version. I want to understand who tree folks are. Yeah, there's it's a lot. And now, you know, I've passed that Living Springs Bathhouse Exhibit yeah. so many times at Barton Springs and every time I pass it I think, do I have a quick 15 minutes to pop in here and and I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to. Now I'm yes. definitely going to. Same.
2: It's really cool
0: to talk to somebody who's behind those movements. Right. Who's actually put in the time and effort to create that knowledge share.
1: Well, and it's easy to not take it for granted, but just to not notice it unless you have yeah. been graced by the presence or had like a direct interaction with somebody who's affiliated with any of the things that you just mentioned. And what was so profound about some of the works that she produced when I was watching them, and they're not very long listeners. I mean, they're one of them I think was 25 minutes or so, and the other one was an hour. But it was that it can be very exhausting and continuous work. Like it's a constant fight for these advocates to protect the things that we just appreciate all summer, all winter, the places that we visit with our dogs, these watersheds like Burton Springs. And it took a lot of work to get them where they are today and to keep them the way they are.
0: I wish I understood more about nutrient loading, And what I mean is I understand the overall concept there, but from a practical perspective as a homeowner and a citizen, mm-hmm. what it means in my daily life, cer- what certain actions mean to mm. the greater area if I choose to take them. So if I fertilize my lawn a certain way, or if I, you know,
1: yeah, what are I'm the implications? sure that
0: somewhere somebody has a list of like 10 ways to be aquifer friendly or 10 ways to be aquifer unfriendly, but yep. the, sum it up like this is how you recycle. These are the recycled items you can put in your blue bin. These are yep. the things we won't take. Something really simple. I'm sure it's out there, but now I need to go figure it out. If I find it, listeners, I'll put it on our website so you can have it too.
1: That's a really good idea, actually. She didn't talk about it or we didn't get into it, but one of the things that I think she does a really good job of in her documentaries is talking about the pros and the cons. So to your point about like what to do, a lot of these landowners that had land that buttressed or that was like right next to the city-owned property or what wasn't yet owned by the city that protected Barton Springs. The argument on the flip side is like this is my investment. I own this land and now you're telling me you're either taking away you want to to buy it or you're saying that it's regulated in some way. She's really good about striking the balance of like, look, we've got to listen to both sides, but there has to be some common balance in all of us making an effort to to protect. But that's one of the things I really loved is there's some moderation and and ease and balance in how she tells the story
0: yeah <laughs> all right well that was fun i hope everybody yes. enjoyed it and, um, and
1: yeah i think we've got some ideas for where we hit up next i'm almost thinking the botanical gardens might be a good time Oh, okay.
0: i think that's where we should do our our next intro from the tanaguchi um japanese garden it's beautiful have you ever been there
1: i've only done the sculpture garden i uh-huh. haven't done the botanical oh, garden yeah. so which no, is shocker cool. but yes i am down let's, let's do, do it. it
0: all right all right Okay, we'll catch you next time, listeners. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find Under the Moon Tower episodes
0: at underthemoontower.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. So follow us on Instagram at under the moon tower or shoot us an email with any questions or feedback at under the moon at gmail.com. And special thanks to Brandon Burke
1: for production on our podcast. See you next time.